Okay, we're going to try to go ahead and get started this evening. Uh, if you would open your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 42. Ezekiel 42, and we're going to continue our study of Ezekiel's temple. It's kind of interesting. We're going to get a full chapter, chapter 42 of Dimensions, which just thrills everybody to death. We're going to get a couple of things besides Dimensions tucked away in there, which are very important. And then we're going to move to chapter 43, and it looks like a silver alert or some such thing. Yeah. Yeah. Don't pay the ransom. They let me go. Huh? Amber alert. Okay. All right. When we bow in prayer, just pray they find the kid. Okay. At the same time. But anyway, chapter 43, the first 12 verses of it are very important verses. And uh, they're, they're important because they help us put together some chronology and other dynamics of the tribulation and entry into the millennial kingdom. So before we begin, let's just take a moment for prayer. Uh, lift up whoever that is in that amber alert. Let us uh, also come in front of the throne of grace and ask for understanding uh, in this portion of the word. Let's pray. Father, we're blessed and privileged to be able to come together in in your house. Father, we thank you just for the fact that uh, you have uh, let us become part of your family and let us be your kids. And Father, uh, we'll be praising you for that forevermore. And Father, we know it was not by our doing, but it was simply by your grace. And so, Father, I just pray that that your hand would be upon us tonight. The Holy Spirit would be our teacher. I pray we'd learn some important principles here about your word and how it's put together and why. And we ask that you nourish our souls with it. We pray also for this uh, missing child. We pray they'll be found safe without any harm and that you'll, uh, you'll just uh, be with them. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Ezekiel 42, we're at uh, we're still in the portion of the temple and the dimensions of the temple. And I'm sure glad we got these pictures because this is a whole lot of stuff to try and absorb without any frame of reference, without any kind of picture. When you when you're doing the tabernacle, there's plenty of pictures on the tabernacle you can get a visual pretty easily. But um, I, I think about what these what these look like and when they were given the dimensions of the tabernacle. And then he says, oh, give it to Bezalel and Aholiab and let them do it, the work of a skillful workman. So there was leadership and guidance by the Holy Spirit for a lot of the designs because the designs weren't actually spelled out other than they would be a cherubim. They would be, um, you know, some type of design, but the but the workmen had the freedom to be able to put these put these things together well we see some things kind of similar within this uh, millennial temple 42 <clears throat> starts off verse 1 it says then he and this is the man this is the man that was like bronze of chapter 40 and verse 3 he's been the guy that's been escorting uh, Ezekiel around and I sometimes wonder <clears throat> we're not told that but is this John 
Did he connect the dots with the with the Apostle John from Revelation chapter 11? Let's go and take a, a measuring stick. And so were they these two walking around together? And you ask, well, how could that happen? Well, it's the vision. But when is the vision for? And then when you ask, when is the vision for? And you go, this is millennial. Then you're thinking, if this is Ezekiel and John back, they're in resurrection body. Ah, isn't that interesting? So that opens up a whole new realm and line of thinking. He says, He brought me out of the into the outer court. The way toward the north, he brought me to the chamber, which is opposite the separate area and opposite the building toward the north. Along the length, it is 100 cubits. That's about 150 feet. Was the north door. The width was 50 cubits. I'm going to see if I can find some of these. First four slides here have to do with uh, what he is talking about and and describing. Okay. Oh, I did not flash back and forth. Okay. And that's the second one, three and four. Okay. And opposite the, the 20 cubits, which belonged to the inner court, and opposite the pavement, which belonged to the outer court, was a gallery corresponding to the gallery in three stories. So you can see this gallery here in three stories that it is that it is talking about. And before the chambers on the was on inner walk, ten cubits wide, about fifteen feet. Okay, right in that particular area. And a way of a hundred cubits, and their openings were on the north. And the upper chambers were smaller because the galleries took more space away from them than the lower and middle ones in the building. So we're seeing these things as staggered. These are bigger on the bottom and they get progressively smaller going up. And they were three stories. They had no pillars like the pillars of the courts. Therefore, the upper chambers were set back from the ground upward more than the lower and the middle ones. I'm sure thankful somebody put these together in these drawings. I, I truly am. Because even with the drawings, this is hard to follow. Uh, now, <clears throat> I'm going to skip down to verse 10, <laughs> which is the, the next set of slides. In the thickness of the wall of the court toward the east, Facing the separate area and facing the building, there were chambers. Now, the chambers, uh, they're going to tell us about. He says, and the way in front of them was like the appearance of the chambers, which were on the north, okay? And according to their length, so was their width. And all their exits were both according to the arrangements and the openings. And corresponding to the openings of the chambers, which were toward the south, was an opening at the head of the way. The way in, in front of the wall toward the east as one enters them. Okay. This is the wall that he's talking about. Now, why have the buildings? Okay, We, we can kind of get a mental picture of the buildings, but what are they for? And here they're telling us what these are for. He said to me, the north chambers and the south chambers, which are opposite the separate areas. Here's the north chamber. There's the south chamber. See, these are kind of mirror images of each, each other on the north and south side. This west side, we don't know what that building's for. Nobody's even, the commentaries I've looked through trying to find something, even offered a speculation on it. We don't know what it's for right now he says 
they are the holy chambers where the priests who are near to the Lord shall eat the most holy things. Okay, so these areas are areas for the priest on the north and, and the south side. There they shall lay the most holy things, the grain offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering, or trespass offering, as, as we normally call it, for the places holy. So that it's talking about offerings. There will be offerings. And it's kind of interesting because in when we get to 43, verse 13, then it starts talking about the offerings. It's mentioned them. But then it's going to start talking about what they are and what they're what 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 they're supposed to do. When the priest entered, then they shall not go out into the outer court from the sanctuary without laying there their garments in which they minister, for they are holy. They shall put on other garments, then they shall approach that which is for the people. So it's basically saying these the, the priests are truly holy and they're supposed to stay that way. Uh, it's been said by several that actually the holiness code for the millennial temple is is stronger than it was for the tabernacle or for Solomon's temple. Okay, so that's the part of what we're seeing here. Now, this next one, kind of cycle through this. That's the size of it. It says, Now when he had finished measuring the inner house, he brought me out by the way of the gate, which faced toward the east, and he measured it all around. He measured on the east side with a measuring reed. It's the measuring rod, the same one that that he'd been looking at. 500 reeds by the measuring reed. He measured on the north side, 500 reeds. By the measuring reed. He's on the south side, 500 reeds with a measuring reed. You know, the Lord, I guess, thinks we're stupid, right? And we are. We've proven that for millennia here. Why does he say the same thing over and over and over again? Why didn't he just say it's square? Okay? Because he wanted us to know that each each side, each thing has a purpose has some type of design. We can't answer all that on this side, I don't believe. But what we what we can see is that he's got this laid out in a perfect square, and that's the way he wants it to be. The only thing he didn't tell us was measure the diagonals. We talked about that before, which uh, if you're getting ready to put together a building of any kind, you better get the diagonals exactly perfect. Because if you start a quarter of an inch off, you're going to end up a foot off by the time you get over any span of building. He measured it on the four sides. It had a wall all around, the length 500, the width 500, to divide between the holy and the profane. Now, 500 reeds is an immense square of approximately... 1.14 1.14 miles square. That means each of these lines is about a mile and a seventh. Okay? So it's not one and a quarter square miles. Okay? What it is is um, this is 1.17. So if you want to find out how many square miles, you you multiply it out. 1.17 times 1.17 and you come up with you know, and it's somewhere less than two square miles, but it's still a good chunk of ground that we're talking about. And and uh, the key is it's more in all of ancient Jerusalem. 
Okay, that's the size of the temple. The wall no longer separates the Jew from the Gentile, but the holy from the common. That's what it's designed to separate. So it's telling us if the, the, the profane means basically the koine or the common. And it's basically telling us that there's some, uh, there's some common things going on on the outside of the wall. And what's that? People with sin nature still exist on the outside. Now, verse 43, that should do that one. I've got to change things here. Go to this next set. Chapter 43, and it says, Then he, again, this is the man with the appearance of bronze. Chapter 40 and verse 3. Now when you find bronze involved, uh, you have judgment. Okay, so this this guy with the appearance of bronze, he came, uh, bronze, he came for judgment. And that means that he's checking the standards that have been laid down. Okay, and he says, led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east. Okay, now here's where it starts getting a little more intense. Because this gate of Solomon's temple is where the glory of the Lord departed. It's where it left from. Okay. So it says, And behold, the glory of the Lord of uh, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. Okay, coming from the way of the east. Okay, so that's the east gate. That's about what it's going to look like. And it says, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. You ever, did you ever hear that phrase anywhere in Scripture? It doesn't pop up often, but when it does, okay, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. Now, this voice of many waters is used to describe the voice of the Almighty in more than one passage. So when you see this, it's talking about this is, this is God. This is a Shekinah glory coming back to the temple. Now, it says, and the earth shone with his glory. It's interesting because you find that phrase in Revelation 18.1. And that's what, what happened when he destroyed prophetical Babylon. He lit the world up. Now, verse 3. And it, which is his glory, was like the appearance of the vision which I saw. Like the vision which I saw when he, this is when the Lord came to destroy the city. Okay, why did he why did he leave? Ezekiel saying that he came to destroy Jerusalem. He saw that he saw that vision. Okay? And what he's seeing now is very similar to what happened when the Lord destroyed the city. And the visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Kabar. And I fell on my face. 
Now, we started at chapter 33. If we'd have started at chapter 1, we'd have seen three different visions by the river Kabar that was brought to Ezekiel by, by a man. In verse 4, And the glory of the Lord came into the house by way of the gate facing toward the east. The glory, okay, now you got to stop and think about this because if the millennial temple isn't going to be built until the millennium, the Lord's not coming in there immediately at the second advent. Otherwise, the temple would have to have been built in the tribulation. So the millennial temple, Ezekiel's temple, is not going to be built until the millennial kingdom comes into play. And you say, well, I thought it'd all be there and all together. Because it sometimes sounds like it, but it doesn't have to be. Because there's a thousand years to build it. How long is it going to take to build it? Well, that, you know, human beings are going to be scarcer than hen's teeth. I mean, by the time you get done with the tribulation, they're going to be, there's not going to be a whole lot of them. But who's going to be back? <laughs> the church, right? In resurrection body? Who else? Old Testament saints. Like Ezekiel. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we can sit down and eat dinner with all of those guys. You think about that. And suddenly there's plenty of labor. To get this thing done and built. So not to mention the fact. That the Lord could just say while well, he's coming from the east, poof, and there it is. <laughs> I mean, if, if he can bring the heavens into existence, making a temple perfectly is no problem at all. So, <clears throat> and the Spirit lifted me up, this is Ezekiel, brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. Now, this is for Ezekiel a taste of what it means to be in Christ. Now think about that. Here he is. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. Ezekiel's in the temple. He's in Christ right then. And it's just a taste that uh, he got blessed with. And why did he get blessed with it? So I could tell everybody else about it. Because that's going to be his, wa his walking papers when he gets done with, with his vision. Now, <clears throat> the glory of the Lord, first point of the summary, departed the temple to the east. And this is Ezekiel 11. It says, Then the cherubim lifted up their wings and the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain which is east of the city. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God to the exiles in Chaldea, ah, otherwise known as Babylon, the Babylonian exiles. So the vision which I had seen left me. Then I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. So Ezekiel gets a picture of the traveling throne. Now, it, it's kind of like that question on Star Trek one time, what does God need with a spaceship? Okay. And on Star Trek, you can figure out any number of theologies coming into play at that. 
But the very fact is that the God we serve can manifest himself any way he wants to, anytime, anywhere, and in multiple places. Okay, That's the one we serve. He's omnipresent. He can say, okay, I want to be in India, Africa, uh, Europe, South America. I want to be there at the same time. It's not a problem. Jesus is the manifestation of the omnipresent God, according to Hebrews 1.2. So he is the exact representation of his being. So if he is, you have to really stop and ponder these things. He's omnipresent. He's right here, right now, with the same intensity he is at the farthest part of the galaxy. Now, is he stretched? No. If he wanted to manifest himself in here, he could do it. He could do it quite easily. It wouldn't be any any problem. So that's that's what he did when he took on the form of a child. God localized part of him, not all of him, okay, because he was just as much God inside of Jesus' flesh as he was outside of Jesus' flesh. But he localized himself and he manifested himself so that we get a glimpse. He is the exact representation of his being is exactly what it says. Now, sometime after Ezekiel and the man finished measuring the millennial temple, the glory of the Lord returned from the direction it left. So it left toward the east. Okay, And when it's coming back, it's coming back from the east. The voice of the Lord was announcing his return. Now, the voice of the Lord is uh, Ezekiel 125. This is one of the places it's used. It says, Now over the heads of the living beings there was something like an expanse, like an awesome gleam of crystal extended over their heads. And honestly, I want a replay of this vision. One that whenever we get up there, I mean, this is one of the things I'm going to say, Lord, can you show me what you showed Ezekiel? And under the expanse of their wings were stretched out straight, one toward the other. Each one had two wings covering their bodies on the one side and on the other. And I also heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of abundant waters as they went, like the voice of the Almighty. Okay? <clears throat> A sound of tumult, like the sound of an army camp. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. And there came a voice from above the expanse. It was over their heads. And when they stood still, they dropped their wings. These were cherubim that were used to haul around a portable throne. So he could manifest himself as he chose to do that to whoever he chose to do and whenever he chose to do. Now, Revelation 1.14. You say, well, I'm not sure that's the Lord. All right, let's just keep reading. Revelation 1.14, and his head and his hair were like white wool like snow and his eyes like a flame of fire and his feet were like burnished bronze he's coming to make his enemies a footstool for his feet that's the picture of the burnished bronze and it has been caught what it's been caused to glow in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of many waters that's the way revelation 1 opens up Revelation 14, And I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, 
like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder, and the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. He is the maestro of the concert of the age, is what he is. So when he talks, oh, like a sound like a many waters, many different sounds coming together, you know, that's what a whole lot of people speaking different languages sound like. Isn't it? But see, he doesn't utter babble. What he speaks is truth. And it's basically saying, I think he's communicating to everybody in their own language at the same time. Isn't that amazing to even grasp? But it takes a, it takes a, not a supercomputer, it takes God to design so many different languages with so many different inflections, so many different pieces of vocabulary, so many different accents. They, they, they all basically work the same noun subject object. They have indirect object. They all basically work the same, but they're so different. We've got, we've looked at languages all over the world, and there, there are some that, don't look a whole lot different than uh, the English language. And then there's some that are purely pictorial. Chinese just looks like a bunch of chicken scratching. It's all put together, but it makes perfect sense to people that speak it and know it. I mean, it's just, it's just think about all the different languages. How many languages are there? I think they've got something like 20,000 now. They keep finding, and then they find dialects. Um course i don't know how they count a dialect i don't know if they count yankee as one and southern is southern is one i don't know how they, they count those different dialects or the english language um i think the irish have a dialect all their own i mean it's hard to understand a, a lot of folks now the earth will be illuminated as in the day when prophetical babylon was destroyed Revelation 18.1. It's going to be lit up. It's recorded by Ezekiel that he received three previous visions by the river Kabar. The first one is in chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. This kind of calls it all together and starts the writing of this prophetic book. And that's the vision of God's throne. That's the first vision he got. This is summarized because... There's, this follows on for another chapter, two chapters after that, chapter 1, chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, he has another vision by the river Kabar, and that's where Ezekiel's appointed a watchman. Okay, He's supposed to watch out. He's supposed to tell the sons of Israel. He's supposed to be the watchman on the wall to let them know that trouble is coming. And then in chapter 10, the third vision was the departure of his glory. That he saw. So <clears throat> this is what it, that's what he's referring to when he refers to it here in in chapter 43. He's referring to those three visions, and they all struck him with awe and um, made a lasting oppression impression. Now we know from other passages before the Lord enters the temple, he has to defeat his enemies. See the the millennial temple. Not all built and ready before he defeats his enemies. Because it's it's not ready yet. What happens just before the second advent? Massive, multiple things. 
massive earthquake splits Jerusalem into three parts. It opens up the Great Rift Valley, which is a fault line that runs right through the Dead Sea and on south. And it will form a trough there where the 200 million man army will be waiting and where the Lord will kill people. So the blood runs to the, to the horses' bridles for 200 miles. Okay? There are things that have to happen. The lights go out. Okay? For one thing, a comet has hit the earth. Sometimes star falling from heaven called Wormwood. It's hit the earth. It's caused massive trouble. I, I watched part of the Armageddon the other day, the one with Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck and all that. I watch it about once a year just to just to be reminded of the of of the the way the enemy works. We're going to save ourselves through some great drilling team that they have extracted from an oil well thing somewhere and they've sent them to an asteroid to drill 800 feet in the asteroid and blow this thing up. <laughs> you know, the sad thing is if we are ever being approached by a comet, which we will be approached by a star, according to the trumpet judgments in, in Revelation 9, when we're approached, and, and we're, well, Bruce Willis will take care of that. They might even send Stallone with him. And then this comet hadn't got a chance. Just like they'll send the expendables up there. Get, I mean, it's, it'll all be over. Now what's got to happen? Because there's a whole bunch of things come together at the second advent. Zechariah 14 is one of them. It's the most descriptive passage you're going to find of the second advent. It goes perfectly with Revelation 16 and Revelation 19 when the Lord comes back back to earth with a broadsword in his mouth. Zechariah 14, I'm going to read the first 11 verses if you want to turn there with me. It says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. He's talking to Israel, right? Have they been uh, captured? Yeah, in the, in the tribulation, a third of Israel is going to be wiped out. They're going to die. So it's, it's going to be a massive piece of bloodshed. They will be invaded by the king of the north, who will go through and defeat the king of the south, and then turn back and lay siege to Jerusalem. In the meantime, the king of the west is in the plain of Esdraelon, okay, to the northwest of Jerusalem. The kings of the east are at the south end of the Dead Sea. That is the setting for the second advent, okay, when the Lord shall defeat all of his enemies. He says, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Okay, that's second advent stuff, right? And the city will be captured, king of the north, laying siege to Jerusalem. This is, this is out of Daniel 11. So when Zechariah writes this, there's a lot of uh, scripture yet to be written that's going to expand on this. He says, the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth. Okay, There's going to be a scenario set up 
that then the Lord will show up. Then he will take care of the battle. The Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem, where? On the east. Isn't that where the Lord's coming from? That's Ezekiel 43. Okay, he's he left to the east. He's coming back to the east. He's not yet in the temple. And he takes, takes his stand to the east of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. And it says, <clears throat> And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north. See, this is for dumb people. Okay, if it's split east and west, okay, what's it saying? Okay, half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. Okay, so if you're going to split it from east to west, they got to move. Okay, so he's very descriptive here. And you will flee by the valley of my mountains. You, as the remnant left in Jerusalem, that siege is being laid to the remainder of the Jews. And he said, you're going to flee. Now, this should be, I mean, ring us back to the, to the Red Sea of Exodus 14. Whenever they, they, were, they had an army against them, they couldn't go anywhere. And the only place they could go was across the sea. And so what did he tell Moses? Okay, raise up your staff. And guess what? Moses obeyed. And they went through the sea. This time they go through a mountain. Okay? He parts a mountain for them to run through. And he says, You'll flee by the valley of my mountains, in case you forgot who they belong to. Before the, uh, for the valley of my mountains will reach to Atzel. Yes, you'll flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah. Then the Lord, my God, will come and all the holy ones with him. Oh gosh, that sounds something like what we're going to read in Jude that was stolen out of the book of Enoch. It makes people keep trying to take the other stuff out of the book of Enoch that uh, all that proves is that that part was correct. And he said, but when, when's he going to come with all of his holy ones? Not at the start of the trib. At the end of the trib. And it will come about in that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. Oh, guess what happens just before the second advent? All the lights go out. Now if you want to put Matthew 25 in with it, it says immediately after the tribulation of those days. So... This battle takes place on the first day of the Millennial Kingdom. Not in the trib. The trib has just ended immediately after the tribulation of those days. And it will be a unique day. I guess it will. There's no sun, moon, and stars. It will be a unique day which is known to the Lord. Neither day nor night. And it will come about that at evening there will be light. And it will come about in that day that living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. 
half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea, the Mediterranean. It will be in summer as well as in winter. You read other places, you find out that the Dead Sea, now that can't support any life whatsoever, is going to be changed into fresh water. That's another small miracle that God does. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. That's how you know it's second advent. And in that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. What's been Israel's problem since they left Egypt? They followed other gods. That was their problem. Okay, They did it all through the course of the kings and everything else. All the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Reman south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site. Why? (laughs) So they can build the millennial temple. There's no place there big enough yet to build it. From Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses and people will live in it, there will be no more curse for Jerusalem will be dwelt in securely. Now, Zechariah puts in this chapter, uh, he just, he kind of sucks all the prophecy together, is what he does right here. And then we get other, you know, prophecy has what's called a progressive revelation. You have the initial prophecy that doesn't tell you a whole lot of details about anything, like the promise seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. But then... As time goes on, God reveals himself. More scripture is inspired to be written. More and more prophecy about that event comes to pass. You know that he is going to come back, but you don't know anything about it until he starts, I guess, putting some flesh on the dry bones, so to speak. That's not what that passage is about. Don't misunderstand me. But it's like we've got something so very basic like the promised seed of the woman, and then Isaiah 7:14, a, a, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a child, and you've got that he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. He shall be of the line of Jesse. You, you have prophecies that keep building and giving us a bigger and bigger picture. Now, <clears throat> the Millennial Temple will not be built till early in the kingdom. Okay? It's, it's, the, the land has got to be destroyed, devastated, changed, geological upheaval, and it's not, it's not ready on the outset of the millennium. Okay? So somewhere, and you know, you remember other places, it's going to take seven, seven months to bury the dead. You know, they've got other projects they need to do because you don't want dead bones by a temple. Okay, so that's probably going to be the first order of business. And then, how soon is it going to be done? Like, like I say, you know, you and I won't get tired, you know, like we do now. We'll, we'll these bodies will all be good. They're, we're not going to have any, any broken bones, no more surgeries, no more any of that stuff like that, and no more sin, which is the happy part. I know we'll be good to have, you know, no more ailments that we've got right now. But uh, I think we're going to be happier that we won't sin. <laughs> I hope we will be. <laughs> anyway, but 
the millennial temple will be expected, inspected by Ezekiel and the man. Okay? This man looked like bronze that's been showing him around all this thing to begin with. Guess who's going to be the building inspectors? That's Ezekiel and this man. Now, verse 6 is the voice of the Lord. And I heard one speaking to me from the house while a man was standing beside me. And he, this is the one speaking, said to me, Son of man, you might remember that's a common title for Ezekiel found in this book. It's not used very, it's, it's over half the time the term is used, it's used here about Ezekiel. He says, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell. Now, the word shakan, there's, there's several words translated dwell out of the Hebrew. And this is a word that means securely dwell, permanently dwell. I'm going to dwell here at ease. And he says, among the sons of Israel forever. See, this doesn't fit any other temple, does it? Again, it's got to be the Millennial Temple. We talked about early on, people were saying, well, this is Solomon's Temple rebuilt. It's all kind. No, this is a special temple that you can put everything else, the tabernacle, the temple, everything else, inside of this one and still have room left over. This is going to be a spectacular piece of, of architecture. And I will dwell forever. And the house of Israel will not again... See that phrase, not again, when it starts talking about things they're not again going to do? That's your little keywords. It's talking millennial. They will not again defile my holy name. Now, the word defile is tame. Cal imperfect used 161 times, and it's a word that means to make ceremonially unclean. Now, this is basically saying that, that you touched something you shouldn't have touched. You touched a dead body and went into the temple of Solomon or whatever it was. And that's to ceremonially defile something. It's defiled by, by ritual. It also is interesting. Its first usage um, described the rape of Dinah, Jacob's daughter, that she was defiled. Ceremonially, ceremonially defiled. He was not able to give a virgin daughter away in marriage. She had been defiled because of the rape. Now, <clears throat> he said they've defiled ceremonially my holy name, Shem Kodesh. Beautiful. The, the word for name is Shem. Just beautiful word. Shem Kodesh. Neither they which is the house of Israel in context, nor their kings, by their harlotry and by the corpses of their kings when they die. And the word harlotry, <coughs> it's an interesting word. It's the word zenuth, used nine times. And it's a word that means infidelity or immorality. It's not the common word that you find for immorality. But it includes the spiritual sense of infidelity, of being unfaithful. And how do they do that? By following other gods. 
not going to happen again. He says, by their harlotry and by the corpses of their kings when they die. Now, it's interesting that kings often built their little palaces or their little king's quarters or whatever it was on the south side of the temple. And that's where they practiced their evil. Some were actually thought to have been buried in the temple. It says, and he says, when they die, by setting their threshold, the entry into their kingly chambers, by my threshold, and their doorpost beside my doorpost. See, they basically had rendered ceremonially unclean those other other places by putting themselves in a position so close to the temple that they weren't permitted to to uh, place it there. The doorpost, that's a picture of a door. Gosh, where might you find a picture of a door? <laughs> Jesus himself, John chapter 10, I am the door into the sheepfold. What they're trying to do, they're putting it so close, it says they're basically trying to establish their own means of salvation. And they want to establish their own means of salvation by getting as close to God as they can. Okay? (laughs) Not realizing it's about relationship, it's not about physical location. And he says, with only the wall, I have the temple between me and them. They tried to get close to God by getting close to his house. And they were still far away. He said, they've defiled my holy name by their abominations, which they have committed. Therefore, I consume them in my anger. See, when Ezekiel is there, they've got one king of Israel still left, king of Judah, and he's over in Babylon, and he's going to die and be the last one. Now let them, the house of Israel, put away their harlotry and the corpses of their kings far from me, millennial temple, and I'll dwell among them forever. There's a condition put on that. Now, after the Lord takes his rightful place, he speaks to Ezekiel. Okay, Ezekiel's in resurrection body. So after he takes his rightful place, the Lord makes a divine decree that this is his dwelling place. He has just made a proclamation issued from his sovereignty. This is, this is my dwelling place. Neither the people nor the kings will render unclean his temple again. Now I think in the millennial kingdom, if you're an earth dweller, mere human being, mere mortal, the last thing you want to do is do anything to defile that temple. Okay, You don't want to walk by and spit on it. Wouldn't be a good idea. Probably the last spit you ever exited out of your mouth. I mean, this is because God has been so gracious for millennia. We think about that because literally he's permitted himself to be spit on. Look at Christ. That's part of what they did. He permitted He permitted that to happen. In the millennium, it's not going to happen. You're just not going to defile his, his temple. As well as no permitted immorality in the millennium, there will be no permissive will concerning following other gods. 
Is there going to be immorality in the millennial kingdom? Oh, those people, well, they're going to get away with it. You know, if if the omniscient God is right there and he says don't do it, he's here now, and he says don't do it, people don't see him, so they do it anyway. And then they, they get away with it, so why not do it all the more? He says it's not going to happen in the millennium. Permissive will on some items, not going to happen. Now, <clears throat> he's got to have some permissive will in the millennial kingdom um, because there's still human beings there. And they'd all die instantly and there wouldn't be any more. <laughs> they'd all be dead in the first year. You can, you can count on that. Wages of sin is death. So there is still grace. But there's some things that people don't realize. Immorality destroys nations. It's what it's done throughout all of history. And, you know, it's just taken as commonplace, common practice, and you're just an old fogey if you think, think anything different. Now, some of the kings of Israel sought to elevate their status to godhood by trying to get close to the Lord. This is a passage, 2 Kings 21. I'm going to read the first nine verses if you want to jump in there uh, with me. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did evil on the side of the Lord. According to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. Okay, so it's interesting that they they conquered some people, like in Canaan, and then they adopted their practices. Do you think maybe that's a function of the sin nature? Whenever we do that, because all of a sudden we think, well, we're the victors, we can play God and we can give pardons. And maybe we do it in places where God doesn't want it done well that's what happened in it Joshua got, got tired of killing people and he didn't complete the commands and those people are still bothering the Jews today 3500 years later he says for he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed sometimes kids just have a rebellious streak and they're going to do exactly the opposite of what their parents did okay He erected altars for Baal, made an Asherah, as Ahab king of Israel had done, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He worshipped angels. That's even mentioned in Colossians 2, brought over into the New Testament. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I'll put my name. What altars did he build them to? For these gods. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven and the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he made his son pass through the fire. He practiced witchcraft and used divination and dealt with mediums and spiritists. This is one of the kings of Israel. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Then he set the carved image 
of Asherah, which he had made in the house of which the Lord said to David and to his son Solomon, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I'll put my name forever. Okay, it was there, but uh, didn't he say that once before? But were there any conditions to it? If you follow me, I'll keep it forever. Did he just do the same thing in the millennial kingdom? And I will not make the feet of Israel wander any more from the land which I gave their fathers, if only they'll observe to do according to all I've commanded them, and according to the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen. And Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. Now, even God's chosen can really get messed up. Israel had to put away their evil for the Lord to dwell with them at that place forever. And they didn't, according to just look at what Manasseh did, so he didn't dwell in that place forever, did he? He left. Now he's back in the millennial temple. But he's going to enforce these laws. The law of the house of the Lord. 43.10 He says, As for you, son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and let them measure the plan, the plan of the temple. Let them measure it out. Now, this is the application of this millennial temple to the contemporaries of Ezekiel. So I want you to go tell them about this temple. It's a temple that one day will be because their temple's been sacked. And all the value and all the beauty has been carried off to Babylon. They've been hauled off to Babylon. So, yeah, he said, now I want you to tell you, I want you to tell them about a new temple and about the dimensions. It's interesting that even with these dimensions, why would you rebuild the old temple in Jerusalem? Because it's the wrong dimensions. If you want to go back and rebuild it, uh, you're actually working in, on the wrong, the wrong project. But God knew they would do it, and that's the prophecy of Daniel 70 weeks that comes into play. Verse 11, And if they, the house of Israel here, are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the house, its structure, its exits, its entrances, all its designs, all its statutes, and all its laws, and write it in their sight, so that they may observe its whole design and all its statutes to do them. Now he has just given Israel a chance to build this temple according to his specifications. Not according to Solomon's. Not according to anybody else. But they're in Babylon, aren't they? Are they going to go back to their land? <laughs> That's Ezekiel 34 to 37. They are going to go back to their land. What are they going to do when they get there? Okay. Now, <clears throat> he says, verse 12, This is the law of the house. I ran into this phrase again, and I went, oh my gosh. 
its entire area on the top of the mountain all around shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the house. Holiness is the order of the day in the millennial kingdom. Now, this phrase, law of the house, is captured my eye real fast. Ezekiel was told to leave the vision and go tell the sons of Israel to be ashamed of their iniquities and measure the plan, the plan for the temple. This is what you have to look forward to. The condition for blessing is to look forward to this temple and adjust their lives accordingly. One day they will have a millennial temple. They will have a hope. Do they really believe that God is going to come back and do this? The law of the house, (laughs) this is in the Hebrew, but there's a word oikonomos. Oikos means house. Namos means law. Law of the house refers to a dispensation. This is the law of the house. What is the what is a dispensation? Where there's a change of priesthood, of necessity, there's a change in law. You know what the next phrases are in Ezekiel 43? A change in the priesthood. It is saying that this is for a new dispensation. And it tucked that word in there just almost so gently that you could blow by it and miss it. But you find the word dispensation in Ephesians 1.10 and 3.2, Colossians 1.25. Or depending on which translation you get, you'll find stewardship. But the Greek word is oikonomos, which is law of the house. We are of the law of the house of the church with a universal royal priesthood. Okay, And the law of the house is love others as Christ has loved us. So <clears throat> the next portion of Ezekiel is about the new priesthood. Hebrews 7.12, where there is a change of priesthood of necessity, there's a change of law. And so here it is laid out. People say dispensation to something dreamed up. Yeah, not really. It's certainly inferred here. This is a new way of doing business, is it not? And the laws are, you're not going to defile this temple. The laws are, if you function immorally or worship other gods, you'll pay the price. Thankfully, we're past that stage (laughs) in our life. We're in a new page. Old page has been turned. Let's pray. Thank you for this day. Thank you for your love and grace. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for letting us make a little bit of sense out of it. Father, we know it is designed for us to to understand, but we also know, Father, we have to understand it in pieces and in stages. So, Father, I pray that, that tonight we've understood it a little bit better so that we can indeed be more helpful and we can indeed point out to others that uh, one day Jesus is coming back to destroy all of his enemies in fulfillment of what your word has to say. Let us find peace and comfort in these words. In Jesus' name, amen.